0: All right, look at First Peter, the third chapter, and the verses that concern us today are verses one through seven. You know, there's absolutely no doubt about it, no question about it, the kind of preaching that God intended to come from the pulpit is the exposition of the word of God. That's how people learn and grow and become strong. That's how they get the guiding principles for their lives. That's how they come closer to Christ That's real preaching. All right, look at these wonderful verses. Beginning with the first verse of chapter 3, 1 Peter. In the same manner ye wives be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the behavior of the wives. While they behold your chaste conduct coupled with fear, that's reverential fear, respect, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of braiding the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any terror. In like manner, ye husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Let us pray. Our wonderful Lord, as we open thy word this morning, how we pray that it will minister to us and that somehow there will come into our families a sense of thy presence that will transform our homes and make them a little bit of heaven in this world. How we pray, our wonderful Lord, that by the Spirit of God, thou will minister the word of God to all of us, and we will thank thee in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord amen I think that it's about time that our so-called experts on marriage and the family and the home began to give consideration to the tremendous teachings on this subject to be found on the pages of the holy book uh, we have newspaper columns ad infinitum sometimes ad nauseam and we've listened to counselors to no end and there are those who are continually consulting our psychologists and psychiatrists for a solution to their marital difficulties. In fact, these folk are doing a land office business. And in it all, it is fascinating, if not intriguing, that the one who performed the first marriage in the Garden of Eden and instituted this magnificent union between man and woman has been left out. I think that we ought to know that marriage as we know it in Western civilization is on the basic premise of its ethic entirely Christian. In Western civilization we look at marriage and the relationship of a man and a woman in an entirely different way than those who do not participate in this kind of culture do. And certainly I would not guarantee that With becoming a Christian, the whole problem of marriage is automatically solved. But I do say without hesitation that a complete fulfillment, a meaningful marriage, can never be realized in the total sense that God intended it to be unless both the partners involved have a vital relationship with the living God through faith in the matchless Christ and that he is indeed the center of their lives together. Uh, We all know that the great American tragedy is the breakdown and all too frequently the breakup of the American home. Uh, We could bore you with endless statistics, but we all know it's a fact. And I think that very tersely and pointedly we can say that the supreme enemy of marital happiness can be stated in a single word, and that word is selfishness. This arises from unreasonable demands or stubborn refusal on the part of a wife or a husband or both to live up to reasonable responsibility. But there's more than that, of course. And I think that we can say that a person who enters into marriage on the popular 50-50 proposition is proceeding on the basis of a very disastrous, calculating, selfishness. It's interesting that the biblical approach to marriage is unique because, you see, the Word of God teaches that love isn't something that we depend upon merely in the realm of sensual and emotional response, but that love is affirmation. And I say to the young people that I counsel that this, of course, is different because it is only Christian, And when two people are married, they usually have some very excellent chemistry that brought them together. At the beginning, it is intensely physical. And if the relationship uh, is a good one and it begins with the right kind of a foundation, it may grow in the love. I do not believe at the very beginning that it is anywhere near what the potential of it will someday or could someday be. And so i suggest that love begins with affirmation and i tell these young people that the first thing that they must do is affirm that they're going to love that one who is going to be their life partner if they have any doubts about the ability to be able to do this then they should not enter into this relationship but they make an affirmation they say i am going to love you nothing you do nothing you say your behavior the days you're nice the day you're not nice is never going to have anything to do with the fact that I love you I make the affirmation that I love you and I always assure young people that if Jesus said you can love your enemies then certainly you've got something to go on but that's the basic affirmation and that affirmation is unconditional There are no ifs, ands, wherefores, and buts. It's a total commitment. And you see, when you have two people coming into that kind of a relationship with that kind of a commitment to each other, you have them bound at such a deep level that anything that happens up on the realm of the superficial will never affect the validity and the security of that basic relationship. That's the biblical approach. Where both wife and husband have this ideal as a dominating goal, they will create a beautiful relationship, usually with the profound and magnificent spiritual results. And so Peter, by the Holy Spirit, gives specific, meaningful, helpful admonition to wives and husbands in the matter of their attitude toward each other. But let's begin by saying that the Word of God makes it very clear and plain, a Christian is never to knowingly marry a non-Christian. No matter what the situation or the circumstances is, if I know that a Christian is marrying a non-Christian, I will have nothing to do with the ceremony because it is explicitly forbidden in the Word of God. I also feel, and I'm glad to say that all these young men who are with me have the same conviction, that the church should not marry unbelievers. There is an idea rampant that uh, ministers should perform ceremonies for two unbelievers without any feeling of uh, doing something that is not consistent with the holy book. As a matter of fact, the institution of marriage is 100% a Christian institution. So I will not marry people unless they are unless I believe with all my heart, committed Christians. This is a Christian institution. And it's interesting how the word has gotten out and we don't have near as many applications for marriages as we used to have. But that's one of the glorious things about a standard. And then when I do marry young people, I want you to know that I feel I have an investment in their life for as long as I may live. And I make them promise me that from the day they're married, that if they ever have any difficulties before they ever go to their own parents, because parents are terribly prejudiced. Irene and I were not, but most parents are. It's very difficult to get any, any objective advice uh, from parents. We, we, we're just kind of the way we are. And so I suggest that before young people go to anybody, they have to come to the one who is a part of their coming together. And, of course, I assure them that if I am not where they can reach me, that they will seek a minister that they know loves the Word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word is clear. For the Word says in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 and 15, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That means very simply and definitely, and do not be mismated with unbelievers. What communion hath light with darkness, that means, what common interest can there be between goodness and evil? How can light and darkness share life together? Or what part hath he that believeth, the apostle says, with an infidel? What can a believer have in common with a non-believer? But now, Peter turns to a problem that Christianity inevitably produced. And by the way, it is not a new problem even at the time that uh, we uh, see it in the presentation of Peter because it's the same problem that we have with us today and now when one member of a family comes to the knowledge of the matchless Christ and the other one remains untouched by the appeal of the gospel. Now doubtless there were many Christian women in the Asiatic provinces who were the first in their households to commit themselves to the wonderful Christ. And when they did, they immediately had an overwhelming, a gigantic problem. Their problem was how should they try to win their husbands? What should be their strategy, their modus operandi? By the way, Peter's answer is just as valid and just as good in the 20th century as it was in the first. It's rather fascinating that uh, Peter had six times more to say to women than he did to men. But there was a reason for this, and the reason was because the problem of a Christian wife was far more difficult than that of her husband. Christian husbands of the first century, even if their wives uh, declined for a while to follow them in their faith, face nothing like the acute problems and complications and hardships of believing wives with unbelieving husbands. And I think to appreciate this, we have to understand the historical situation. In every sphere of ancient cultures, women had no rights at all. Even under Jewish law, a woman was nothing but a thing. She had no personal dignity Indeed, she was owned by her husband in exactly the same way he owned his sheep and his goats. On no account could she leave him, no matter what he did or how irascible and cruel he might be. There was no reason that was given for her to ever uh, escape him. However, he had the right to dismiss her at any moment, any time. All he had to do was just write it on a piece of paper and, handed in as a bill of divorcement, and he had gotten rid of her. So for a wife to change her religion while her husband did not was unthinkable. And of course, in Greece at that time, the duty of a woman was, and I'm quoting a Greek senator, to remain indoors and be obedient to her husband. Betty Frieden, whatever her name is, would have a fit about that. She must see as little, hear as little, and ask as little as possible. She had no kind of independent existence, no kind of a mind of her own, and her husband could divorce her almost at caprice, but he did have one small obligation. If he divorced her, he had to return her dowry. Under Roman law, a woman had no rights. far as the law was concerned, she remained forever a child. When she was under her father, she was under the patria potestas, which means the father's power to such an extent that the father even had the right if he wished to take her life. And when she married, she passed equally under the domination and the authority and the power of her husband. She was entirely subject to him and completely at his mercy. Cato, the censor, the... Typical ancient Roman wrote, If you were to catch your wife in an act of infidelity, you can kill her with impunity and without a trial. The whole attitude, you see, of ancient civilization was that no woman could ever make a decision for herself. And so I think we need to be reminded that the Lord Jesus Christ elevated women to the highest exaltation the loftiest pedal of honor and dignity and respect that they had ever known. And indeed, women owe more to the presence of Jesus Christ in this world than anyone who ever lived on this planet Earth. All of the respect accorded to women in Western civilization is based 100% on the teachings of the New Testament. These first-century Christian wives then were seeking to win their pagan husbands to the Lord Jesus Christ, but they were evidently going about it the wrong way. May I humbly say in, in my counseling across the years that it can be said almost always, Christian women, go at it the wrong way. Most women engage in actions that alienate instead of win their husbands. And so Peter's subject is, how do you win your non-Christian husband to Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, you don't leave him. Uh, Peter gives the same admonition as the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 13, And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. That's first, the Christian wife must remain with her husband so long as the husband did not send her away. Uh, Peter does not tell the wife to preach, to argue, to nag, to cry. He does not tell the wife to insist that in her faith there's no difference between a slave and a freeman, no difference between a Gentile and a Jew, no difference between a male and a female. But all are the same in the presence of Christ whom she has come to know. She is not to use that beautiful argument, that glorious truth. Well, what then does Peter tell her to do? Well, I think that we can put it very tersely and express it very well when we just say simply be a good wife. By the silent preaching of the loveliness of her life, Uh, she must be used of the Holy Spirit to break down the barriers of prejudice and hostility and to win her husband for her newly found Lord and Savior. Well, then what is she to do specifically? Number one, Peter says she is to be submissive. That's not easy. He writes in verse 1, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation. That means behavior, lifestyle of the wives. The New English Bible translates it, You women must accept the authority of your husbands so that if there are any of them that disbelieve the gospel, they may be won over without a word being said. In a Taylor's rather free translation, he writes, Women fit in with your husband's plan. This is not a cringing, spineless subjection that is meant. It is a submission which is a voluntary selflessness based on the death of pride, the abasing of self, the instinctive desire to serve, not the submission of fear, but the submission of perfect love. You see, the character of a Christian wife was that she was to give ready compliance with the responsive decisions and consequent practical demands of her husband every family if it is to be united and to run smoothly and happily must have a head just as every team must have a captain somebody has to be in charge and the proper head of the family according to the teaching of the Word of God and the magnificent passage the Apostle Paul gives us in Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33, is the man, and he is to be a man. There are a great many men who seem to be less than the definition I'm implying, and nothing is more pathetic than Uh, than when a father is passive and permissive and weak, and a mother, on the other hand, is authoritarian and obviously the president of the corporation. Uh, This situation immediately manufactures unhappy, mixed up, emotionally disturbed children and later adults. Final responsibility for decisions concerning what is done, how, when and where must be his. If a husband is an unbeliever, even actively hostile to the gospel, the Christ-like attitude of a Christian wife will mean more toward winning a defiant husband than backtalk and pouting and temper or even pious-sounding pleadings and warnings. I uh, think of a woman in the very first church that I ever served, lovely young woman who came to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Her husband was not a Christian. And of course, in her new relationship with her Lord, she had that marvelous eagerness that goes with a a new Christian's discovery. And she wanted to be at every service of the church. And so she was there, believe me, for the midweek service and Sunday morning and Sunday evening Her husband offered no complaint about Sunday morning and even about Wednesday evening, but he complained about Sunday evening, and he made the statement that uh, he didn't feel that she should go on Sunday nights to church. So she came to me, and she said, Pastor, what shall I do? And I said, you do exactly what your husband tells you to do. Well, she said, wouldn't that be disobedient? And I said, no, that's doing exactly what the Word of God says you're supposed to do so you tell your husband that if it's all right with him for you to go on Wednesdays and Sunday mornings that you'll be delighted to stay home with him on Sunday evening really she said I said yes really so she told him that she was going to stay home on Sunday evenings and so the first Sunday came around and she came to church in the morning and then Sunday evening she settled down in the chair and He said, what are we going to do? And she said, well, I just want to be here with you. And he said, I know, but you really want to be at church. She said, no, no, I I love you. And because I love you, I want to be right here with you. Yeah, but you'd like to be in church. (laughs) Well, of course I would. But I love you so much that I'm perfectly willing to spend this evening with you. He said, well, what will we do? Well, she said, we'll, we'll read together. What would you like to do? He said, I don't know. All of a sudden, it became something to do for the first time. Well, she said, they got through that Sunday evening, and then the next Sunday came and, and went through practically the same conversation. She said the third Sunday came, and just the, our service was at 7.30, At seven o'clock, he was busy getting his shirt on, getting all dressed up. And she said, are you going out? Yes, he said, I'm going to church with you. (laughs) Well, she said, that isn't necessary. Well, he said, I happen to know it's where you really want to be. And he said, I just thought I'd go with you. Do you know if I recall correctly, within a month, that man came to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In Augustine's Confessions, he says to God as he writes his confessions concerning his mother Monica When she came to marriageable age, she was bestowed upon a husband and served him as her Lord. And she did all she could to win him to thee, speaking to him of thee by her deportment, whereby thou madest her beautiful and reverently lovable and admirable to her husband. Finally, when her husband was now at the end of his earthly life, she won him unto thee. Isn't that beautiful? The phrase, if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be one, simply means that if any believing husband obey not the word of God, that even without the word, seeing the way their wives live would be a testimony sufficient to win them to Jesus Christ. Weymouth expresses it they may, apart from the word, be won over by the daily lives of their wives. She must be submissive. Second, Peter says she must be pure. Verse 2, while they behold your chaste behavior, uh, coupled with fear, and the word there could be better translated respect, having been permitted to behold your reverent chaste behavior. Never give your husband any reason for a moment to question your loyalty, your fidelity, and your love for him. I always say to married women that the greatest tool that God ever placed in their hands to win their husbands to Jesus Christ is their love for their husbands. And after you become a Christian, you can love your husband more than you've ever loved him in all your life. The incentive for this attitude is, of course, because you hold the Lord Jesus Christ in such absolute love and reverence. The Christian wife must live in the conviction that all of her life belongs to Jesus Christ, and every area of her life and of her living must honor him. When there can be no other kind of communication with her husband concerning her spiritual life, there can always be that Indescribably lovely, silent, effective preaching of a pure, Christ like life. Thirdly, Peter says she must be modest. He says, Whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold or putting on of apparel. Peter says, Don't be concerned about the outward beauty, the arrangement of the hair, the wearing of jewelry, the putting on of dresses. Bengal, the old commentator, speaks of the labor bestowed on dress which consumeth much time. That's amusing, isn't it? You see, uh, once again, that some situations have never been any different than we find them right now. What Peter's talking about is undue interest in self-adornment. He's talking about an obsessive concern with style and fashion. And, of course, it must be said that the position of women was such that apart from their sensual and their physical attractions, they had absolutely no significance at all. Dr. Reese says we misread these words if we think of them as constituting simply a ban on braiding hair or using gold or wearing a robe. Rhetorically, it is the same kind of Hebraism that we find in John six twenty-seven where our Lord said, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. Obviously, our Lord does not prohibit daily work for daily bread, but he does condemn an inverted sense of values in which food for the body is reckoned to be more important than the life of the soul. And so you see Peter here is making a plea for modesty, attractive, self-restraint in the realization that after all what really makes a wife desirable to her husband is not something as external as her coiffure, but something as internal and magnificent as her character this beauty of course cannot be hung around the neck like a pendant flashing but it grows from within like the blossoming and the blooming of a lovely flower And so Peter is saying that even if some coarse and calloused husband fails to appreciate it in God's sight, it is nevertheless extremely precious. You see, what Peter is really talking about here is consistency. And of course, he's implying that a way a Christian woman dresses should be in keeping with the fact that she is a Christian. And I'm sure that the modest Christian woman would take this into consideration, If I may put in parenthesis a a word that isn't out of the Bible, it's just plain Jack MacArthur. I think that women ought to dress in keeping with their age. Uh, Many skirts after a certain age, well, you know, you've got the picture. But let's remember uh, that an unattractive, uh, drab Christian woman is as much a hindrance winning her husband to Christ as one who goes to extremes in emulating the fads and the fashions of the world. You see, Peter is making this very, very important point that a woman makes a mistake by trying to dazzle her husband with extravagant, exaggerated fashions and cosmetics when her emphasis should actually be upon what she really is and the development of a Christ-like personality. No matter how tastefully she may be attired or immaculately, immaculately groomed, a bad temper, a haughty spirit, an overt selfishness could make her very ugly. Peter says the best attire for a Christian woman who wants to win her husband is the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. In other words, that hidden quality of the heart, that imperishable ornament that is precious in God's sight. The word quiet describes her complimentary and constant attitude in the character of her action or her reaction toward her husband and toward life in general. In other words, she shows no rebellion, no resentment, no fuss, no flurry. She has a quiet adequacy and a genuine sympathy and compassion. Then Peter says this inward beauty was exemplified in holy women. He says in verses 5 and 6, For after this manner in the old times the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection under their own husbands, even as Sarah Obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, in other words, respecting him, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any terror. Peter says these godly women made themselves beautiful by fitting into their husbands' plans. Sarah, for example, obeyed Abraham and called him master. She looked up to him. And you've become Sarah's children, Peter says, if you do right. You are her spiritual descendants, and no matter what happens, you're never to give way to fears. The old English commentator Alfred suggests as an interpretation of this expression, as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement, as long as the believing wives are doing good, they need not be afraid with any sudden terror on account uh, from which their unbelieving husbands may exact from them. You see, a believing wife in those days had sometimes a logical reason to fear an unbelieving husband. By the way, a Christian wife, you see, lived in a heathen society where she would be constantly tempted to luxurious and senseless extravagance. She lived a life where she might live in constant, unrelieved fear of the caprices of her heathen husband. But you see, Peter is saying she must live in selfless service, in goodness, in serene trust, and that that would be the very best sermon that she could ever preach. Indeed, that is a way that she could win her husband to Jesus Christ without a word Being said, she would win those who are disobedient to God's word. I think that we can say that there are few passages where the value and the beauty of a lovely Christian life are so vividly and magnificently stressed. But now we come to verse 7, the obligations of a Christian husband. Verse 7, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. As short as this passage is, it is the very essence of the Christian ethnic which never ever places all the responsibility or the duty on one side. It speaks of the duty of slaves. It also speaks of the obligation of masters. It speaks of the duty of children. It also speaks of the obligation of parents. And Peter has just spoken of the duty of wives, and so now he comes to the duty of husbands. And it is a characteristic of Christian ethics and moralities that a privilege is never granted without a corresponding obligation. And so the first thing that Peter says to these husbands is that a Christian husband must be understanding and considerate. He must never be belligerent, authoritarian, and selfish, which, as we know from an analysis of behavior, usually comes from a lack of security. The admonition of the Apostle Paul in that uh, Glorious document of Ephesians 5 verses 22 to 33 is that a husband must love his wife, listen to this, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. I always say to the young couples that I counsel, no wife is going to have any trouble living in subjection to her husband and under his final word, if that husband loves her as much as Jesus Christ loved the church so much that he would die for her, if husbands loved their wives as Christ loved the church, no wife would have any difficulty respecting the leadership of her husband. Secondly, a Christian husband should be chivalrous and courteous. He should recognize the more limited physical powers of a woman and give her corresponding consideration and protection. And thus, he gives her honor and love and most of all security, worthy of her confidence and her devotion and her trust in him. You must show a deference to women, Goodspeed translates this, as the weaker sex sharing the gift of God's life with you. By the way, as you know, in the ancient world, chivalry was unknown. And with the emphasis upon the liberation of women, I'm so afraid that we will see less and less of chivalry. And I'm reminded of the old fellow who was riding a mule and his wife was walking along behind and they had been traveling this way for a long, long time. And finally... They met a man and he said to the old fellow, what kind of a man are you riding the mule while your wife is walking? And he replied immediately, what kind of a man am I? Obviously, she ain't got no mule. There you have it. A Christian husband should recognize the full equality of his wife as a fellow sharer, Peter says, in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and in his gift to both of them of his thrilling eternal life. Indeed, they should live together not only in the natural enjoyment of one another, but in that exalted and indescribable fellowship that comes when two people love each other and love the Lord Jesus Christ. The equal spiritual rights of a man with a woman and a woman with a man was a New Testament truth. You cannot know what an amazing, shocking truth this was. Women did not share in the worship of the Greeks and the Romans. Even in the Jewish synagogue, women did not share in the service. And in the Orthodox synagogue, they had no share at all. They did not even attend the services. They weren't allowed to be present. There was no part for them in worship. They were to be represented in that experience by their husbands. When I was traveling in the Muslim world, especially in Turkey and, for example, in Izmir and Istanbul, and I visited the great mosques, I was so impressed by the fact that at the center of the most magnificent part of the mosque, the men knelt to go through their prayers on magnificent carpets. And talking with the Moslem guide, I understand that these priceless carpets are very, very frequently replaced as soon as there is even the uh, faintest sign of, of soil or of wear. And then finally, in every mosque, I would discover a corner. And interestingly, it was never dusted. There were always cobwebs. It was always dirty. And there in an area away from all the men would be a few women gathered. And all of the old rugs that were thrown away, the ones that were worn, the ones that had holes in them, they were the ones in which the women were permitted to kneel. Can you imagine the concept that Christianity brought to the world when it said that men and women should come into the presence of God together, equal, bound in the love of jesus christ and on the basis of a mutual relationship of redeeming grace to him and so you see a christian husband must have a conscience that never forgets the tragedy of broken communion with god that's what peter is saying listen to it giving honor unto the wife is onto the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life, notice that your prayers be not hindered so that nothing interferes with your communion with God. Peter, all through this passage, has not been talking about rights and about responsibilities and about obligations. He is saying that when these relationships are mutually assumed, there is almost never any need for worry over words about rights. But whenever selfishness injects its superating poison into a marriage, it does more, Peter says, than sever human relationships. It destroys our fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In homes where there is constant quarreling, vickering, immature on Christ-like behavior on the part of parents, they inevitably turn loose upon society sad, neurotic, even psychotic children and later adults. Oh, let me say to you parents that your children are watching your priorities. They know what's first in your life. They see what causes your eyes to light up. They know where your interests lie. And it isn't so much as we say so often any word that you can say. It's what they see, what they sense, what they feel. If you're a member of the church, but you constantly criticize or occasionally criticize what's happening in the church, or if they notice that on Sunday nights you stay home instead of being in church in the fellowship of God's people, or if they notice that you don't really have any deep concern to have a growing knowledge of the Word of God, you have no great deep interest in spiritual values and the things that really matter, this communicates. This communicates no matter what you say or what kind of a front you put on with people. And don't be surprised if later on your children drift because, you see, they have caught on to your priorities. They've caught on to what's really first in your life. Oh, what a terrifying responsibility we have as parents to communicate Jesus Christ to these precious young people that are, that are placed in our care. And you know, I feel that this is true with our church. What a joy it is to have men like Mike and and, and Ken, whose whole lives are purposed toward these precious young people. And how careful we should be that our attitudes and our relationship should never express anything less than overwhelming love for all of them. Dr. Samuel Shoemaker said a Christian home is not one in which the relationships are perfect, but one in which the imperfections and failures are acknowledged and where problems are worked out in prayer and in obedience to the light that God sends. In such homes, there is great freedom for people to say what they think and express what they feel. There is not the repression of law imposed by one or both of the parents on the children. How sad it is when children grow up in a home that is supposed to be Christian because it is a, a home where there is fantastic picadillos and inane, asinine legalism. And then where the children, to see behavior in other areas that completely contradicts all of this nonsense. What's so amusing to me is that a few years ago, a Christian was someone that didn't dance and didn't smoke and didn't go to movies. And then, as Porter Barrington so beautifully put it, then when we got television, then all the Christians that missed the movies for 20 years got caught up You see, we were trying to build some kind of a Christian testimony on the basis of externals. And of course, there is a place for the negative factors. But what really counts, you see, is consistency. And we could talk a lot about that. But I feel so sorry for young people who grow up in homes where there is this kind of uh, piosity, uh, which often bespeaks an inconsistency that's absolutely terrifying. And young people interpret Christianity instead of being something beautiful and glorious as a bunch of regulations that have done nothing but make them miserable. I can remember a home I used to visit. I didn't mean to tell this, but I will now that I've started. And always in Sunday afternoons we had prayer, and I had so much energy that I could pray so long, and then after that I had a move but we were not allowed when we visited those people to ever do anything but have Bible reading in the afternoon and and prayer. And I remember how this dear man would drone on reading the Bible, and I could think how much I wanted to play ball or do something, but I had to sit in that chair, and there's no place on God's green earth that I hated, like going over there. Then when it came prayer time, I had a special chair that I always wanted to get because it had holes in it little holes in the back and there was a design. And so while they were praying, I could be figuring out all kinds of things with the design and it helped a little bit. There were six children in the family. Today, I do not know one of those children that has any interest in spiritual realities. You see, they, they didn't get the idea at all. Listen, what you want to communicate to your children, what you want to communicate to them is that your life belongs to Jesus Christ. And that there isn't anything you do, that he isn't the one who guides you in that, and that your life is lived for his glory, and you communicate the love of Christ. I think it's something that I enjoy very much. My children felt punished when they couldn't go to church. If we really wanted to punish them, we'd say, Well, now, look, if you do that again, you're not going to go to church tonight. And they'd start to cry. That was the one place they wanted to be more than any other place. All right, people in this kind of a home that Shoemaker is writing about are allowed to grow up, to make mistakes, to be themselves, to laugh, to live through difficult crises, or perhaps privacy if they want it. Every once in a while, one of ours wanted privacy. wanted to go in the bedroom and just cry all by themselves, and so we just let them go in and cry. Or help if they want that. When young people grow up in homes where they see genuine love between their parents and an absolute devotion to Jesus Christ, first that home becomes a little bit of heaven in this world, and as a result, the children mature into persons of balance who can be used both in the world and in the cause of our Lord Jesus Christ. Obviously, our relationship with God can never be right when our relationship with our life partner is wrong when we're one with each other, that we're also one with God. A woman begged her minister to tell her what to do about her alcoholic husband. She said she had taken all of the abuse and the humiliation and the poverty she thought she could stand as a result of his drinking. And the minister asked what she had done to change him, and she said, I'm so glad you asked me. I've begged him, I've argued with him, I've shamed him, I've preached at him, I've read the Bible to him, I've threatened him, and I've prayed for him for years. The minister said, if any of these efforts worked, with great despair, she said, not one. Then the minister said, there's one thing you haven't tried. She said, I don't believe it. (laughs) He said, there is. Why don't you pray for yourself instead of your husband? And why don't you ask God to change all the things in your life that you know are wrong? The testimony of the minister is that the woman tried it and it worked. Her husband stopped drinking. You see, he no longer had to escape. (laughs) Anyone can discover a Christian marriage who will sincerely pray this prayer, Lord, change this marriage into something beautiful and wonderful and begin with me. I always think of a phone call that I received that is absolutely classic. A lady called me up one Saturday afternoon and she complained for a good 15 minutes about her husband. And I said, how long have you been married? And she said, 30 years. And I said, what did you think we could do about him this afternoon? <laughs> oh, listen, put the Lord Jesus Christ at the center of your home. Because a home is like a solar system. The center of the great sun holds the solar system together. And if it were not for the sun, the solar system would Flag men into pieces. And unless the Son of God is put at the center, the heart of your home, it too may fly to pieces. Make Jesus Christ the absolute center of your home. If your husband is not a Christian, then love him to Jesus Christ. And may he see the love of Christ in you. Let us pray. Our wonderful Lord, how we thank Thee for the admonition that comes from Thy holy book. We know that all of us who are parents need Thy divine help. We need the Word of God to refresh our minds, to bring us to renewed dedications, to get our perspectives right. And How we pray, especially for, for young parents who have growing children and who are feeling so keenly the responsibility of these precious little ones knowing that what they are depends so much on how we relate ourselves to them in the growing years. And now we pray that this will be a glowing, golden hour of renewed commitment on the part of all of us to Thee and to one another. And now while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed as we conclude our service this morning,